today on episode number 186 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Eddie Watson shares about assessing the impact of open educational resources. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today marks the second time that I'm having today's guest on the show. Eddie Watson was back on episode 137 to talk about the book he co-authored with Jose Bowen, Teaching Naked Techniques. Today, Eddie rejoins the conversation to talk about open educational resources. C. Edward Watson is his formal name, but he does go by Eddie in conversation, as you'll hear in the interview. He is the Associate Vice President for Quality, Advocacy, and LEAP Initiatives with the Association of American Colleges and Universities. He was formerly the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Georgia. That will be some of the research that he shares with us today. He's the executive founding director of the International Journal of ePortfolio, the executive editor of the International Journal of Teaching and Learning in Higher Education, and has published on learning and teaching in a number of journals, including Change, Educational Technology, Educause Review, the Journal for Effective Teaching, and to Improve the Academy, among others. Eddie, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Well, thanks for having me back on. It feels like you were just on the show because these things go so fast. But back on episode 137, you were here to talk about a book that you co-wrote with Jose Bowen, Teaching Naked Techniques. And one of the big takeaways from that episode, I recall so vividly, was some research that you did around distractions in the classroom and and laptop use and cell phone use. And, and I heard from so many people that said you had such a unique perspective and were one of the few people actually performing such kind of research. And I'm excited because we have a whole different topic to explore today. But I know that you have throughout your entire career kept your researcher hat on so we get to both hear your philosophy, but also a little bit about some of your findings and discoveries. Let's start all the way back to when you were at the University of Georgia. Tell us about how y'all started to just initially become interested in open education, maybe broadly and specifically open educational resources. Okay, well, I joined the University of Georgia in September 2012, I believe, and of course, like anyone new to a university, especially in an administrative position like I was in, I came in as the director for the Center for Teaching and Learning, you're always kind of looking for maybe something signature as an initiative you can kind of put forward and put a lot of energy to and hopefully bring about uh, change in a positive way. And so as we were looking at a variety of different things, open education resources and some of the work going on at OpenStax at Rice University really excited us. And we knew that maybe a quarter of our students had reported having some challenges meeting their financial needs from one semester to the next. And so 
we felt like we were a little bit kind of nibbling the edges with free textbooks, but then as we thought about it more, that's kind of the one thing that students have difficulty predicting from one semester to the next. You kind of know how much tuition is going to be months in advance. You kind of know how much your rent's going to be from, you know, one month to the next. But often students will arrive at the beginning of the semester on a Monday morning and start collecting syllabi and then after a day or two realize that they need an extra $900 or $1,200, which does seem to be about the average for a year from some data sources regarding textbooks. So it's 900 to $1,200 on average for a student to purchase textbooks for a year? For a year, correct. So knowing that that can often be a big shock to students, we thought, you know, if we really could maybe have some courses or maybe even design a path through the core curriculum that would have free textbooks, that could really indeed help students. We'd heard stories anecdotally of students that would, you know, sign up for that anatomy and physiology class and then who, and they were aspiring to be doctors and, or later on in their lives and they see that the textbook package was $400 or more, they would drop that class and actually sort of change their career trajectory based on just what they found the the textbook cost to be. Now, that's certainly one extreme example, but there was certainly, it happens more commonly that students might see how much textbooks are and then decide, you know what, maybe I need to delay taking this class. I'm going to drop this class because the textbooks are so expensive and I'll pick this up next semester, which could delay time to graduation, which maybe overall would actually increase the cost of um, the higher education experience. So I guess what brought us to OERs initially was just thinking, maybe we could save students money. And we started working with a fairly simple formula as we began that work around saving students money with free textbooks. We, we were looking for faculty who taught large classes and also had expensive textbooks. Mm-hmm. So we were thinking, you know, if we could just hit one faculty member who taught hundreds and hundreds, if not over a thousand students in a given semester or a given academic year, we could have a big impact financially. Eddie, this is an awkward question for me to ask, but because I've heard it said so much outside of a podcast context, I'm just going to be bold and ask, did you hear concerns from faculty who felt like either through whatever loans that students were accessing to obtain their degrees or just the reality, did, did you hear from faculty who were concerned that maybe the issue of costs for textbooks was inflated and that students were you know, spending their money on stuff other stuff because they didn't see the value in textbooks? Or was it really, were you able to, with the faculty, have them all see the kinds of ways in which students weren't able to access education because of this, this expensive textbook issue? No, I did hear, I can think of a couple of examples of faculty who questioned whether or not students were spending their money, you know, as wisely as possibly they should. I heard an example of someone driving a nicer car than they drive or something like that. It's like, well, that's probably not the student that we're looking to help. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have an for kind of any, any context or for any example. But, you know, knowing that we had uh, NESI data, so, you know, the National Survey of Student Engagement, we had NESI data that, that showed that, you know, approximately a third of our students did have unmet financial needs from one semester to the next. And so those were the students that we thought that we we could possibly help. I mean, Mm. someone who 
drives a nice car and doesn't have to work at all during college. Probably the purchase of a textbook isn't a challenge for them or would not negatively impact their success in a given course or program. But there are students that indeed a free textbook would make a difference. Yeah, yeah, that helps a lot. Well, so as we got going with our initiative, you know, we were again targeting those courses, those large enrollment courses that were using expensive textbooks rather than approaching the whole challenge of OER adoption on our campus by doing broad adoption. We actually focused very narrowly on just a handful of courses, thinking that we could have a large impact if we could work fairly closely with maybe just a handful of faculty over time. And we ended up focusing in on, you know, from, from 2013 to 2017, this, this past summer, whenever I left the University of Georgia, there were probably eight to ten different courses that we, we worked on, and these were core curriculum courses, these large enrollment courses with large textbooks. And over that time span, including this past fall semester, it was nearly 36,000 students across about 12 courses that receive free textbooks hmm. and looking at how much the textbook would have cost the previous textbook that faculty were using before they made this adoption shift. Currently, collectively, it's been about $3,260,000 that's been saved by students. Mm. That's just remarkable. It's truly remarkable. And, and for many people who, who might be listening and, and aren't familiar with these open textbooks, I know for me, I'll admit that didn't seem like this could even be possible. You, you, you mean to tell me that these textbooks are free, but t- describe these textbooks, because now I've seen them and now I'm much more aware, but, but how good are these textbooks that students were now able to access as compared to the ones through more traditional publishers in the past? Well, that's, that's a really good question. And that's, that's probably where we met most of our resistance from faculty, r- rather than any other question that was raised, there was sort of the question of, of quality. And without a doubt, there's a range of quality of things that you can find out there on the World Wide Web. But there's a project that's been funded through several different foundation gifts at, at Rice University called OpenStax. And we very much focused our adoption activities on those textbooks from OpenStax. And there's several reasons why. So OpenStax, the, the people that, that ran that, in fact, the editor-in-chief used to be with one of the big five publishers and used to be involved with the creation of textbooks. So he brought the processes that are used at some of the other publishers forward as they began to author things for OpenStax. So for instance, faculty are indeed the authors of these textbooks. Faculty are indeed the peer reviewers of these textbooks, so just like the regular textbook process. What they did, was they, though, is that they paid faculty up front, and the, the contracts were that there were no expectations of residuals or ongoing income from the sale of the textbook because there are no sales of the textbook. So the funding from the Gates Foundation and Hewlett and a few others out there led to the funds that paid faculty to indeed author these textbooks, but the expectation was from the, from the outset that they would be indeed be free. And so that, that's often the two questions that I hear are, well, how, how do you know that these are any good? And it's like, well, these are the same processes that other textbooks have been authored. And then it's the, the next question is, are these really free kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Is there marketing? Mm-hmm. Is there ads in the middle of me? There's always a hook in almost anything that's free. You know, you'll 
give away your email address and you'll start getting spam or something like that. And no, indeed, the OpenStax textbooks are in, indeed free. So you know, any faculty member can go out there, uh, decide to use them for their course. They actually kind of have a content management system for their textbooks, which means you can kind of take it within their system and uh, brand it for your own course, like you can have your own name on the front of the textbook. If you don't like some of the content, you can actually delete chapters or reorganize content. Um, it's, a, it's a very flexible sort of machine that they've built around these textbooks. And they, they also continue to pursue grants, which has enabled them to have second edition of various texts. And if you go to the OpenStax um, website, you'll see that the list of titles that they have are pretty much titles that you would find on any college campus, even mm -hmm. whether you're a community college or an Ivy. You're going to find Intro to Sociology, uh, Intro to U.S. History, Intro to Biology, Chemistry, Psychology, Physics, on down, on down the line. And they're actually building out into um, business titles at, at this point, I believe. So you can find you know, economics titles and the like. Really kind of focusing on where are most students you know, it's really about adoption. You know, they've they've chosen titles that you would use on pretty much any campus, which increases their impact for um, larger savings for students nationally. One of the other things that people can see if they go look at some of their textbooks are some of the supplemental re resources as well, a guide for instructors, test exam questions, and there, there it would appear some sort of a verification process in order to receive those more instructor-oriented materials, then you need to be verified that you are indeed a faculty member, and they've because those, those, those resources have little locks on them, and then the students' resources are available to anyone who goes and browses up there. I saw that for many of the titles. Yeah, and they're definitely growing more into that domain. That seems to be sort of the 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 new world within the the what the what the big five publishers are doing is it's not just about the textbooks. It's about ancillary materials. I think for a while they've been uh, giving away CDs, for instance, that might have PowerPoint slides and the like on it. But now they've grown into tools and and quizzes and almost like another learning management system that might accompany the textbook. So the OpenStax textbooks with all of the ancillary materials, they aren't wrapped around the OpenStax textbooks to say that the way that they are with the publishers. So there's a bit of you know, evaluation that faculty would want to do as they compare what you might get from a publisher versus what, what are the extras that come with OpenStax, and are those extras worth the difference between the cost of the two textbooks? And you know, thinking also about a student's own, I mean a student, a university's own identity and its student population. I think we we pretty much most faculty have a sense of who they're serving for at, by by in terms of a of a student population so if you've got a population of students that might be more you know challenged by some of the expenses within an institution it might be a good idea idea then knowing that to maybe err toward the free textbook and not make the students have to purchase all the extras that come with the textbook. You can still get the content without all of the bells and whistles, if you will. So 2013 to 2017, just staggering results in terms of 36,000 students across 12 courses, multiple millions of dollars saved for students. I understand there were some unexpected results coming out of this. Can you share a little bit about some of the implications for equity with our students? Yeah, I mean, one of the arguments that I used to use with, with faculty to kind of get them 
encourage to use it is that maybe it's not just about saving students money, which those bottom line figures are easy to quantify, you know, just how many students and how much was the textbook, and so there were the savings that semester. But I used to also, to sort of ignite people's imagination, I would sort of tell this story. I would say, if you and I had went to the same high school and had the same grades, maybe even the same SAT score, we applied at the same college, we both get into the same college, we go to the same college, the first day of class, we both see the syllabus, and there's a textbook that's $300. And just because of of socioeconomic differences, maybe you're from a family that's better off than my family, and so you're able to purchase that textbook later that afternoon. But for me, I have to go through a financial aid process, and you know maybe it takes a week, two weeks. We've heard stories of you know up to 15 days or, or approaching three weeks of how long it might take for students to receive the funds that they need to purchase textbooks. Let's say it takes me just 10 days. I bet when the first test rolls around, I bet you having the textbook on the first day of class, all other things being equal, I bet you having the textbook on the first day of class, you're likely to do better on the first test than me. So let's play that out a little bit further. We know from a lot of national surveys regarding textbooks that a lot of students who are in financial need choose not to buy the textbook, that they never have a textbook throughout the entirety of the semester. And we also know that some students don't buy textbooks not necessarily because of financial need, but they don't think that they're necessarily that important for passing the class. So maybe they don't buy the textbook, and there's certainly going to be points throughout the semester where they, where they probably wish that they had the, the, the textbook, <laughs> yeah. but you know, they decide not to purchase the textbook. So it started to dawn on me that maybe this is more than just about saving students money. Maybe this is a new kind of, of equity issue that we're thinking about, and it's almost like a romanticized idea of higher education. Imagine all students walk into class on the first day, and everyone has all of the the content materials that are needed for the course. No one even needs to make a trip to the the bookstore or borrow money from their parents or work an extra shift, you know, downtown at a restaurant or whatever it might be. You have the materials with no worries on the first day of class. So we built a study around that, knowing that we've had these large number of students who have indeed experienced having the free textbook we then essentially um, looked at the courses that had some of the highest numbers, and we looked at the semesters before the faculty member adopted the new textbook, the new free textbook, and then we looked at the semesters after they adopted the new textbook and then just compared how students did. And we found that now this doesn't necessarily speak to learning specifically. We looked at end-of-course grades as sort of our measurement metric here. But we did see, for all students, end-of-course grades indeed improved in when you compare pre-OER to post-OER. We also saw a significant decrease in DFW rates for all students. And we were able to work with our financial aid office and our institutional research office to also, in addition to getting um, grade data. We also got ethnicity data and Pell eligibility data. And we found that course grades improved at greater rates for non-white students and Pell eligible students. In other words, those that we thought that a free textbook would help, Mm -hmm. those folks really saw a difference. 
We also saw significant decreases in DFW rates at greater rates for non-white and Pell-eligible students. In fact, looking just at those subgroups, we saw DFW rates drop by a third. So it really is the sort of the notion that, that OERs are doing more to make the classroom more equitable, more fair. It, it really does appear to be the case that that is one of the outputs, in addition to saving students money, that it is having these other effects. So there's so much going on these days in higher education when you think about some of the greatest challenges out there. You know, we, we talk a lot about the quality of learning, uh, college affordability, um, you know, completion rates and the like. If, if we were able to cut DFW rates for the at-risk populations by a third, that, that is a really significant impact that, that could truly shift graduation rates um, four years on. And when you look at a lot of the initiatives out there regarding how to impact some of these great challenges, there are these big predictive analytics projects, very expensive initiatives that programs or universities could could buy into. In addition to those kinds of approaches, there's you know notions of increased advising. I mean, all of these things that are kind of like expensive, higher up on the tree kinds of initiatives. OERs are really the lowest hanging fruit on the tree when you think about initiatives you might employ to improve student success within courses. Just switching to a free textbook and making sure all students have, have the materials on day one, that subtle shift in, in faculty um, adoption seems to be having a huge impact on how well students do in classes. As a researcher, is there anything that you wish that you would have looked at in this particular report or or do you just feel like now you got to go tackle other things are there are there other ways you want to suss out this particular intervention or or now you just want to see it go wider well i guess that's that was one of the questions that we we had was wouldn't it be interesting to look at other types of institutions rather than mm. just the university of georgia like the university of georgia has a a certain profile but does that map to HBCUs? Does that match for to community colleges? Does that uh, even map to Ivies? I mean, we did have a, a quite large pool of students that we looked at. We had 22,137 students that were in our sample, and of those, um, just over 10,000 were in courses using OERs, and then just over, or just under 12,000, as I recall, were in courses the previous semesters before the adoption, so they were using the traditional publisher textbook. And I, I certainly don't think that the quality of OERs is so much greater that it resulted in what we're seeing. I, I do think the only logical reason that I can come to for the, the difference in student success rates and in, of course, grades is really the fact that the OER was present for everyone on day one. It's remarkable. It, <laughs> I'm still going to say it. and I'll, This will be the last time for this episode, but it really does seem too good to be true. And so if anyone's feeling that same feeling that I'm describing, go and look, go look at OpenStax, go look at some of the other places that provide these kinds of resources. Because I, I mean, so far in what I've seen, it is not too good to be true. It's actually happening. And as you said, there are organizations that are investing in this and then places like University of Georgia, you mentioned Rice, I mean, all these places that are seeing such great results. And then all the, that, of course, becomes very compelling to continue this kind of change. 
Yeah, it really does. And there's there's a variety of different kinds of studies that have popped up out there. I know there was one that was published from work that's been done at Salt Lake Community College, and we've worked with with Jason Pickavance and some of those folks out there at SLCC, and they've seen similar gains or similar impacts associated with student success metrics as well. So that's definitely someone else to to check out that's a different context than, say, the, the R1 University of Georgia context. Before we go to the recommendations segment, it has come up on past episodes, but I do want to ask you as well. We've been talking about free textbooks, and in that assumption, we're talking, therefore, about digital textbooks, non-printed textbooks. Is there anything in the work that you've done with regard to students who want to have them printed out or or even how does that work? Is that possible through the kinds of courses that you were describing? Yes. So OpenStax does offer a print-on-demand option. So if you're a student that would prefer to have a a print copy in front of you, you can certainly order one and, and have one of those. In fact, some bookstores on college campuses that have a, a pretty big OpenStax presence. We'll go ahead and order a few copies for students who, that would prefer to have the the, the paper copy. Um, we did a study before the one that I just described that was mostly about student and faculty perceptions of of OER, so free textbooks. We were looking at the OpenStax biology textbook and some of our first semesters using this. So me and Sherry Clouser and Denise Demisi wrote an article that um, was, was recently published, I think just this year, in IRRODL, if folks wanted to, wanted to check that out and sort of see what, what we, we found from a student perceptions perspective. But you know, some students did, I mean, when asked what students liked most about the textbook, the first answer was that it was free. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not a surprise there. In fact, as we've, I've sat in classrooms when faculty would talk on the first day of class about the free textbook, and when they announced that it was free, in a couple of classes there was spontaneous applause. I mean, it was just palpable that students were concerned about how much the textbook might cost, especially in a science class, and were so relieved that there was literally spontaneous applause of 300 students. So, you know, thinking more about their perceptions in, beyond just it being free, they like the fact that an e-textbook is portable. So when they go to class, if they've got their laptop or their iPad, they indeed have their textbook in class with them. Um, one of the negatives, one of the issues that students would ask, you know, what, what do you not like about the e-textbook, uh, one of the issues was eye strain that you know, some students recognized that reading online was a little bit more of a challenge. They also noted that it's not as easy to kind of use an e-textbook as it is to use a paper textbook. I think we've all kind of stuck our hand in a book and then we're kind of like looking maybe back at the index or we're flipping back and forth with pages in our, in our fingers. Um, that's certainly an e- that's a, that's a difficult task to replicate in, an, in a online or with a technological solution. So some students are just, you know, they've had a lot of practice doing certain types of things with paper books that they found that they couldn't do. But the, it seemed like the excitement, the, what, what students liked about the textbook far outweighed what they saw as limitations. One of the things I love about e-reading in general is just if it's inside of something like iBooks or inside of something like the Kindle app, is I can just literally just drag my finger and produce highlights that are then saved and stored. And I did want to mention that, at least in the case of OpenStax, 
their textbooks are available to download in iBooks and are available to download for Kindle so that that same kind of highlights and annotations that are provided within those tools are available to students. I can remember when many of the textbook providers, I mean, they're still doing this now. There's, I don't even remember this app, but an app where, oh yeah, all of your textbooks are inside of this proprietary app that's associated with this publisher and you go in there and it's just awful. Like you can't, you know, get the highlights just don't quite work as seamlessly and it's not, it's disconnected if you use two different publishers. I mean, they're just not ready for prime time in the way that something like Kindle or iBooks are as far as managing our own, our own learning and highlights and those kinds of things. So really a lot of flexible options for people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that the tools, the e-tools are only going to get better. I mean, there's always just, you know, the continued march of innovation around these tools. And so I'm, I'm sure with, with each iteration, we're going to see um, small improvements that make the usability better and better. Anything else I should ask you or you should share about open educational resources before we go on to the recommendation segment? Um, I don't think so. We, we've been really excited about what the the outcomes um, have been for open education resources. And in, in my new position at the Association of American Colleges and Universities, we've been talking about um, open education resources within that context because we're very much concerned about student success and student learning and equity issues and you know, there have been some things that have sort of been perennial issues that we've spoke about, but this kind of highlights a new domain um, within which you'll hear some new conversations um, come about. In fact, at the annual meeting in, in late January 2018, we're going to be presenting the findings of this study at, at the AAC and Youth Conference. Oh, that's wonderful. And to people listening, I will go back and edit the show notes to include links to anything that you know, the descriptions of the sessions or that kind of stuff once they come out and then I'll just keep it updated so it can be a living document for all the latest and greatest around this thing. That's just wonderful. This is the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations and I wanted to share a blog post resource that was posted by Kathy Davidson inside of the Haystack website and community on November 15th, 2017, she shared a active learning kit, rationale, methods, models, and research. And in, I just liked it because it's a fairly quick read for all things considering it touches a lot of really important ways that we can make our classes more active. I like that she discusses that it's not just about producing learning overall, but it's also about producing learning more success for those that are the most vulnerable in the classroom. So she talks about equity and equality in our classrooms and lots of practical ways that we can go about doing this. So she doesn't just stay with theory, but she gives a lot of really practical ways we can make our classes more active. And then there's a lot of research at the bottom if you wanted to explore a little bit more some of the validity of what she is proposing and dive even deeper into some of these topics. It's just a really well done piece and I'll link to that in the show notes. And I'm gonna pass it over to you now, Eddie, to make a recommendation. Well, I guess one of the things that if, that's kind of captured my imagination lately is the, the number of domains of things that impact learning and retention that really faculty have no control over mm. within their own classrooms. So we know that diet, for instance, is a, is a and and water, you know, being hydrated actually Im- impacts memory retention and learning. We also know that exercise is powerfully important for uh, the same set of issues, 
and yet another one is sleep. And there was a book that came out um, in October called Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams that I'm currently working my way through. It's written by Matthew Walker, who is director of UC Berkeley Sleep and Neuroimaging Lab. And there's, there's definitely information in that book about well, the difference between a six-hour night's sleep and an eight-hour night's sleep and how much processing and sort of collating and sorting of previous day's activities um, takes place and how much that impacts memory. So it's really, it's really forced me or moved me, inspired me, <laughs> to try to actually get to bed by 11 o'clock each night not be sucked into my cell phone or television and then try to make it all the way past 7 a.m. to get a full eight hours of sleep. I do feel there's a difference. I definitely feel that there's a difference when I get a, a good night's sleep. So it's, a, it's an excellent book. It's an inspiring book um, that I would encourage folks to read. Do you remember what it was that first had you decide that you wanted to pick up a book on sleep? I, I will admit it seems like one of those things like, yeah, yeah, I know it's important, but there's so many other great books to read. You know, what was it that, about this title that really captured your imagination? Well, I think it was some of the conversations that Jose Bowen and I had had as we were sort of finishing up the, uh, the final work on the Teaching Naked Techniques book. And we had sort of had that realization, wow, there's a lot of research that's been emerging over the last five to ten years that's looking at things that, wow, clearly impact memory and learning that, wow, we just don't really have any control over. And sleep has been one of those things. And so I had I'd done some explorations of um, the power of exercise, and that may have even been my recommendation mm-hmm. earlier this year when you and I chatted the book Spark. So when this book came out and then I heard an NPR story about it, it was like, yeah, let me, I really want to dive into this. And then, you know, I certainly, this certainly can't be things that we use necessarily to uh, help our students. Um, we can encourage them to get a good night's sleep, but we're not going to show up at their dorms and say, hey, you know, it's 11 o'clock. But it's, it's definitely become um, part of my own sort of mental lexicon of things that I'm trying to do from one day to the next. Oh, yeah. And I, can't, I did go back and look, and that was what you recommended last time, Spark, about the book about oh, exercise. Yeah. So you, you have a theme going here for sure. <laughs> I laugh because we're recording this before 2018 hits, and I'm wrapping up my my yearly reading challenge to myself. And I look at the list of books that I read in 2017 and just go, oh my gosh, what a hodgepodge. <laughs> and just, I can see no discernible theme other than I really did try to read a lot of different books this year that, and lots of different topics, but you've, you've got a theme going. I won't, put, I won't hold you to it for the next episode. You're already actually, we're booked to have another conversation I'm really looking forward to. And you, know, you can maybe, I, I won't hold you to this theme, I promise. Maybe I'll try to mix it up a little bit next go around. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for the time previously, and for our upcoming conversation. Every time we get a chance to talk, whether it's being recorded or not, I walk away knowing more. And I also walk away, Eddie, just being more challenged to do better for our students. You inspire me because that is something that in the time I've known you and, and studying the work that you've done in higher education, you are just relentless about, and I appreciate that so much. Well, you're very kind. Thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation. It's so great to be able to extend these conversations about open education and the kind of impact that they could have on our students. And just thanks to all of you who are listening. 
who take that extra effort to make sure we're doing everything we can to serve them well. And thanks to Eddie for coming on the show today and on the show in about a month again. It's just great. Every time we have a conversation, I learn so much from you. And I appreciate everybody listening and being a part of the community. If you'd like to get a little bit of more connection with people that listen to Teaching in Higher Ed, we do have a Slack channel. And you can learn more at teachinginhighered.com slash slack. And if you would like to subscribe to the weekly newsletter that comes out just with the show notes from the prior week's episode, as well as an article about either teaching and productivity on most weeks, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.